is a cord. And what do they do? Let's find out today with Bill Peroni, CEO. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for being on. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Um, we're very excited uh, to be part of the podcast and to speak to your listeners. It's great. My name's Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. Get the formalities out of the way. Our listeners don't know that you and I have just spent the last 15 minutes going down memory lane of all the work that you've done in Missouri. So welcome. Very warm welcome. I don't know beans about a cord. What does a cord do? Can you tell us a little bit about that at, uh, at 50,000 feet? Absolutely. So this is our 50th anniversary this year. We have 36,000 members globally, and we're the global standard setting body for the insurance industry. And we'll talk a bit about those standards, but I don't want to bore your listeners too much because I know they may be in a different part of the insurance industry. But we have on 1,200 standardized transaction types across the value chain that help to support apply, quote, bind, claims processing. When you look to our 36,000 members, we've got all of the major brokers all of the major PNC writers, life and annuity writers, reinsurers, and solution providers. We are in 100 plus countries, and our standards are used across about 90% of the global uh, premiums written worldwide. We have everything from those standards, as I spoke about, to forms. We have reference architecture components where software providers can build solutions for the industry. We conduct about 3,000 training sessions a year. Three to 400 events and idea sharing platforms. And uh, one of the things that we do every year is around 20 market studies. And I know we're going to talk about PNC Value Creator Study in a moment. What's a snapshot of what we do every year? About 6,000 regulatory submissions on behalf of the insurance industry, 7,000 policy admin underwriting claim systems built using the Accord standards. In London, almost 13.5 million annual message transactions. 150 million annual forms and structured data assets in the United States, and in the U.S., about a quarter of a billion annual messages using Accord standards. So that gives you a snapshot. These standards are technical. They have a lot to do with IT, but they're also financially related and accounting. Stuart, back to the studies. We do a number of studies. Some of them we do every year. Some of them we update on a regular basis. We have studies around value creation, technology, and execution. One of the interesting studies that we've been doing, that I've been doing personally for almost 30 years now, are property and casualty value creator study. And I know we're going to spend our time talking about it. And in anticipation for your questions around assets and investment portfolio, we did a deep dive just for this podcast. And it was incredibly interesting. I know we caught up before the podcast started, but some incredibly interesting insights regarding the investment portfolio of these value creators. So I'll pause right there before we get into the study and uh, give you a chance to further focus me. So tell me, the name of the study is the 2021 Accord US PNC Value Creation Study. Yes. How are you defining value creation? That is a great question. So when you look to our industry, there's a number of things you could look at regarding value creation. You could look at combined ratio, ratings, growth, market share, dividends paid, brand positioning, customer satisfaction, how attractive you are to talents, social responsibility. But for our study, we look at cash flow. And this is where I think the, the asset uh, professionals would like it. We look at cash flow as a percent of capital. So cash flow versus cost of capital. 
And we'll talk a bit about the study, but what we do is we look at cash flow generated from underwriting and cash flow generated from investment returns. Now to jump ahead a bit, those firms, those carriers who exceed their cost of capital through both underwriting and investment, we call sustainable value creators. For those carriers who exceed their cost of capital solely through investment returns, but destroy value, had negative cash flow from underwriting, we call them hollow value creators. And for those carriers who do not earn their cost of capital, we call them destroyers. Now, backing it up again, we look at the 100 largest carriers in the United States, 48 of them are publicly traded. And I bring that up because we always like to look at total shareholder returns to see if our model is predictive. Whilst it's only 4% of all the insurers in the United States, it's 88% of the premium. And the smallest carrier in our study is 600 million and the largest is 65 billion. So despite the fact that it's only 104%, we're, we're nearly 90% of all the premiums. And, you know, we're dealing with a statistically valid sample size of carriers and premiums written. So yeah, absolutely. that gives you, and just to let you know, it's 20 years, it's 32 lines of business across every jurisdiction in the United States. So you think about 100 carriers, 20 years, that's 2,000 carrier years worth of data across 32 lines of business, across every state. And we've been doing it now for decades. So you begin to get some very useful insight not least of which is the share returns. So, yeah, and I wanted to when, kind when of, you look when you look at those three tranches, there are some very interesting insights for the forty-eight publicly traded carriers. Yeah, it's interesting. So, let's talk about strategic and tactical observations that you've made in terms of size, scope, strategies, lines of business, and so forth. Some of the things that you mentioned. Sure. What did you see? Sure. Let me first take five seconds here. The average return for our study out of the 48 publicly traded, 52 are mutuals, the average share return over the 20-year time period study, that's real share price speciation plus dividends, was 529%. This is 20-year time period. The value destroyers at 72%, hollows 210%, sustainable 727%. So literally, it's nearly 2x more than the study. So just to help the listeners and to, to keep people from sending you notes, I did nothing more than apply Ben Graham's techniques from the 1930s, 1940s and looking at cash flow as a percent of capital. That, that this is just an EVA-like model. Now, of course, we need to adapt it wildly using yellow books or statutory filings to take that out, but that's what we essentially did. So a couple observations regarding scale and scope. When you look to size, what you find is very interesting. So when you look to any metrics, whether it's LAE, pure loss, investment return, underwriting expense ratio, general expense ratio, what you find is that the larger you become as a carrier, the more you approximate the mean. There's a mean reversion. But being smaller doesn't necessarily mean you do better. So imagine if you took a normal curve Turn it on a 45 degree angle, turned at 45 degrees, you have high levels of variation for a smaller carrier. So you could have, it looks to me, us like greater degrees of strategic and tactical degrees of freedom around superior performance, but you also can have inferior performance. The larger you become, it dampens the volatility around performance, but it seems to limit the strategic and tactical degrees around superior performance. So that's size here seems to help and hurt. It helps you in that you approximate kind of average performance, 
But the larger you become, the more difficult it is. It's not to say it's impossible because there are some large carriers out there doing it. Now, when you look to our study, 56% of the top 100 carriers premium was personal lines, 44% was commercial. When you look to sustainable, those that generated positive cash flow in excess of their cost of capital through investment and underwriting, the mix was 57-43. So line, in terms of commercial versus personal, no real change there. When you look to, when you dig into the commercial lines, 22% of the study was general liability, 14% workers comp, 13% commercial multi-parole, 14% commercial auto, 4% fire, 33% other. Same, very close for the sustainables. Where they did differ though is 33% of the commercial lines was other. But when you look to the sustainables, they assiduously avoided some lines, but they also wrote more heavily in others. So where did those sustainables write? They were heavier in reinsurance. They were heavy with allied lines. They did, surprisingly, MedMail was relatively attractive over the time period we studied. And it was 20 years. Product liability, boiler and machinery, mortgage and financial guarantee. And then what did they avoid? They avoided inland and ocean marine. They avoided accident health, crop, farm owners. So it gives you some sense as to which lines. Now, when you look to personal lines, top 100 carriers, 74% of the personal lines premium was auto, 26% home. Of the sustainable value creators, 79% auto. A little higher in terms of auto, you got some monoline auto riders in there with home as an accommodation with home being 21%. So that gives you some really interesting stats. And I'll give you a chance to ask questions, but I I want to take the listeners through the operating ratio trees because this is where we're going to get to the investment income differences, which are very interesting among sustainable hollow and destroyers. So the question, and I love the I love the categorization of of sustainable hollow and, and destroyers. I mean, that really tells a, a very important story. Do you see a correlation of size to sophistication? So when you say sophistication, do you mean sophistication of strategic intent, underwriting prowess, claims, digitization? Because we've got multiple dimensions there. Yeah. So help me a little. Yeah, absolutely. All those. <laughs> Does that help? Ah. <laughs> okay. So what we find is that the larger you become, the more work it is to drive consistency and constancy across the enterprise. So you tend to see higher sophistication amongst the smaller carriers, my hypothesis, only because it's easier to execute, right? So if you're a regional or a state-based carrier, it's easier to have a digital. And one of our other studies, which we're not talking about today, is digital maturity. We tend to find, guess what? Carriers who are relatively smaller, it's relatively easier to manage the change journey from digital laggard to digital competitor. So we tend to see it. So not to trivialize what it is. Now, what is interesting, though, is strategic intent. And I know you asked about that before we get in the operating ratio tree. For those who've heard me speak before, I tend to simplify our industry. There's only four strategies. That's it. You can compete on price, operational excellence, right? I don't like that because if you compete on price, you lose on price. So you're efficient. Next, you can compete on customer intimacy, the experience. You compete based on the interaction. Next, product leadership. I'm selling you a solution that no one really sells. It's truly unique. It's, I'm competing based on offer quality. And lastly, innovation. I'm competing based on discontinuous change, something really unique. Now, this last study, Stuart, 
what we did was we tried to classify sustainable hollow and destroyers into one of those four. And we were having a difficult time because we were finding that the sustainables, I couldn't say that it was just, by the way, the best strategy to use historically was always product. If you're selling something else that someone else doesn't sell, well, it's much more difficult to shop for it. And you tend to have differing price elasticity of demand. You could do well. However, what we found is that increasingly, and this is important for the listeners, increasingly sustainable value creators, those exceeding their cost of capital through underwriting and investment returns, actually were using two or more of these strategies. So we created another category called composite. And composite means you're working on two or more of these, right? So you've got a good price and you have a unique customer experience, or you're selling a differentiated product and it's priced extremely well. And what we found is that 52% of the sustainable value creators had a composite strategy. That's not something that we've ever seen before. But by the way, it's much more difficult, right? If you're a larger carrier to operate that composite strategy. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Very, very difficult to do. Very, very difficult. So let's talk about operating ratios and operating metrics. Mm. Because I love these stats. Our listeners will love these stats too. So can you talk a little bit about the, all the operating ratios so I can geek out on those two? If we think about the operating ratio is the combined ratio minus the investment income. And the combined ratio is the underwriting expense plus total loss plus policy or dividend. And underwriting expense ratio is the sum of commission, taxes, license fees, acquisition in general, and total loss is the sum of pure loss and LE. So let's work from top to bottom. The operating ratio of sustainable value creators over a 20-year time period across all lines, and by the way, we've got this broken down by state, by individual lines, by commercial and personal, but for the sake of brevity today, let's just look at the total book of business. Sustainable value creators had an operating ratio of 80.6 versus a study average of 87. So wow, that's a big deal, right? Seven points better. Now, Hollow had a 90.9. That's 10 points higher than the sustainables and destroyers had an operating ratio of 94.7. So again, average 87 operating ratio, 80.6 for sustainable, 90.9 for hollow and 94.7 for destroyers. So big deal right there. How did they do it? Well, let's look at the combined ratio versus investment income because the operating ratio is the combined minus investment income. Now the combined ratio for the sustainables was a 96.1. Remember, they generated cash flow from, uh, uh, from underwriting. So, of course, they would have been under 100. But we did not use combined ratio. We looked at cash flow. The hollows had a combined ratio of a 104.3, 104.3, destroyers a 105.7, and a study average of 109. So, out of the three tranches, the sustainable, generating positive cash flow through underwriting and investment, and the hollow, only through investment, and destroyers not getting it, 96.1, 104.3, 105.7 for the average of 100.9. Now let's go to the investment income ratio. Now, given that hollow value creators relied upon investment returns in order to make up for subpar combined ratios, you would expect that their investment income ratio was highest. It was not. Guess what? But we're going to get to a very interesting insight regarding the absolute return. But the sustainable value creators had an investment income ratio of 15.5. Now remember, that is the investment income divided by net premiums earned. So I don't want any of the asset managers out there saying they got 15.5 on a 20-year basis. Easy. That's net investment income divided by net premiums earned. But they had a 15.5 
Hollow 13.4, Destroyers 11.1. So interestingly, good carriers who are good at underwriting and good at claims are pretty darn good at getting investment returns too. And those that solely rely upon them, they did okay. Destroyers had 11. The industry average was a 13.9 on that 20-year basis across all lines. So sustainables were the only ones outperforming the industry average on investment income. I know what we're going to dig into investment income, but I do want to talk a bit about the other dimensions here. So underwriting expenses. Clearly, the sustainables had the lowest underwriting expense and the lowest total loss. But let's get to the interesting piece. One thing I want to make clear to all the listeners here, the commission ratio was the same, nearly the same, 10.6, 10.8, 10.3 for sustainable how and destroy respectively. The idea somehow that direct carriers have an advantage? No, not true. They all had roughly the same commission levels. In fact, another study we did showed that two-thirds of all the value created globally in the insurance industry is created by carriers using independent agents. Independent agents give you great business, not price shoppers, loyal customers, high product density. This idea somehow that direct is an advantage, it is not. It is not borne out in the data. Now, what's interesting is the sustainables spent less on acquisition, 6.3 versus an industry average of 7.6, and less on general expense, 5.7 versus 6.2. How do they do it? We talked about it, digitization. They had higher levels of technology. They use people to form relationships, to educate consumers. But when it came to underwriting and pricing and rating, that was automated. And you saw it. And if you think about acquisition in general being summed together, they had lower acquisition and lower general. And there was. And lower than everybody else. Now, total loss ratio. Now, losses on average in the United States property and casualty industry averaged 73.5 over the last 20 years. So 73 and a half cents of every dollar spent went out the door in claims. Got it. Total loss for sustainables was a 70.3. Wow. Total loss for destroyers was a 79.5, almost 80 cents of every dollar. Now, I will tell you, Stuart, historically, if you overspend on LAE, you save on pure loss, right? If you spend more money adjusting, you see it. In pure, now, if you underspend on LAE, well, you'll see it bleed out in the indemnity costs because you're not really adjusting it. And if you overspend on LAE, you can alienate customers. So there's this triumvirate here of customer sat, LAE, pure loss, where you make this trade-off. For the first time since we've been doing this study for over 20 years, we have found that sustainable value creators had the lowest LAE, 11.3 versus a 12.0 to adjust, but they had the lowest pure loss, 59.0 versus 61.5. Something has occurred over the last several years through automation, through the application of technology, through better business processes, through measures, incentives, implications. We've got sustainable value creators underspending to underspend right? And by the way, our sustainable value creators had the highest customer sat levels, lowest complaints amongst insurance commissioners, highest product density per household, and highest retention. So before people say, well, yeah, they're alienating customers. They are not. So again, before we dig into those investment income details, I at least wanted to say, guess what? Independent agents, bedrock of our industry. Forget about it. They're great. Great customers. Next, acquisition and general expense. You have to automate and digitize. And lastly, applying that same type of technology to claims allow you to underspend to underspend. 
Now, interestingly enough, the destroyers had the highest LAE on average and the highest pure loss. So you're overpaying to overpay. In some theory, you'd probably be better off letting customers self-adjudicate. At least you'd have a much lower LAE and how much worse are you going to be, right? They were a full <laughs> five points higher than the uh, pure loss ratio for the industry. So it gives you this so interesting to see. And by the way, we don't have time today, but as you look at lines at state by state, these messages only become more profound and more reinforced. So kind of the bridging the gap from the operating side of the investment side, you know, Buffett refers to float, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when yes. you get into cost to capital, one minus the combined ratio is, is basically your cost of funds, right? So if yeah, you're under- like leverage, we're a leveraged bond fund. Right. I'm a leveraged bond fund. I'm taking, right. Yeah, I'm a leveraged, that's right. And that's so right. if the sustainable value creators are writing at a 96 and a half, their cost of funds is negative three and a half, right? I mean, that's, and now you're going to take that and you're going to invest that money. And when you talk about the gearing of the invested assets to surplus, you can generate a pretty solid ROE out of there. And the story, at least in my, my simpleton way to look at it, the whole thing holds together. What did you see with regard to total return among insurers in this study? Now, remember, let me remind everybody, net investment income is net premiums earned, right? Divided, I'm sorry, net investment income divided by net premiums earned. So those ratios of 15.5 for the sustainable versus 13.9, again, that's right, the ratio. But when you look to the absolute return, the absolute return for the industry over a 20-year basis, year after year, was 4.2 on a weighted basis. 4.2% was the right. average return. The sustainables had an average return of 4.2. The hollows had an average return of 4.4. They did have a better return, but their premium to surplus ratio, they actually kept more, they were leaner from a premium to surplus standpoint, right? So when you took that net investment income value and net premium return, even though they had a superior absolute return at 4.4, it brought their investment income ratio down to 13.4 because of their premium to surplus ratio, because they had a smaller surplus base, right? And that's always a trade-off. How much surplus and reserve are you going to keep, right? So they had, they did buy themselves two-tenths of a percent better. The destroyers had a net investment income return of 3.7%. So they had the lowest, the destroyers, right? So to remind the listeners again, sustainable investment income ratio, 15.5, net investment income of 4.2% average, 13.4 13.4 investment income ratio, their return was 4.4. And the destroyers had an 11% investment income ratio on that, 11.0. And they had a return of 3.7. So what we did though, Stuart, was we dug down into where did they put their investments across real estate, cash, stocks, bonds, to see and to look at the return. And that was interesting. And we did that for this podcast in particular. And then we also tore the bonds apart to see how many were single A through triple A, how many were triple B, and how many were below investment grade. And again, we're going to see some very interesting stuff here, right? Very interesting stuff. But let me see if you've got any questions before we get into the details. The investment portfolios, you've got three value segments, sustainable, hollows, and destroyers. Were there any material differences in the mix of assets and what those portfolios look like? Absolutely, Stuart. So interesting, right, to look through it. So when you look to the mix, 20-year basis weighted average for the investment portfolio. 
62% were bonds, and we'll talk about those bonds. We've got the mix of A through AAA, A, and then below investment grade. So 62% were bonds, 23% were equities, nine were other, and other includes private equity, hedge funds, mineral rights, aircraft leases, loans, real estate, mortgages, so we know what other, and then 6% was cash. Now, to give you a sense, let's get the absolute return. So the gross yield, on average for the 100 carriers was 4.2%, as we talked about, right? The premium to policyholder surplus was 0.86. So we got that. So the net investment income, the net premiums earned was 13.9. So good. So when we look to the bonds, the bonds return on average 4.4% annually, right? Over the time period, we looked over the 20 years. The sustainers had a return in bonds of 43 And instead of 62% of their portfolio, bonds only represented 54%, right? You can guess at where they made that they had a higher inequity. So you had 54% of the sustainables were in bonds. The hollow though, 73%, 73 cents of every dollar in their investment portfolio over a 20-year basis was sitting in bonds. And their return was 4.5 versus 4.4 of an average. So they did better, but they had three quarters, nearly three quarters set in bonds. And the destroyer had 60% in bonds, and they had an average return of 4.1%. You can imagine why. All AAA, but we'll get to that in a second. Stocks. The average was 23% of the investment portfolio was stocks. And on average, it had an average return of 2.9%. The sustainables had 28% of their portfolio in stock, but they had a 2.8%, so marginally less than the average. The hollows, though, only 13% of their investment portfolio were stocks, but their return was 4% CAGR, much more aggressive, much more high levels of volatility, right? They got alpha, but they got took beta two for it. And when you look to destroyers, 34%, 34% of the destroyers were invested in stock, right? And they only had a 2.3%. So very conservative stock portfolio. Remember, their premium to policy surplus ratio is 0.78. So they had a lot of surplus. So the buy and hold never sell. Now, cash, interestingly enough, normally you'd say, well, who cares about cash? Here's what we found. 6% on average for the industry was held in cash over the 20-year basis. 8% for sustainables. They keep their powder dry. They've got it there to deploy that. 8%. Only 5% for the hollow was in cash and only 3% for the destroyer. But remember, they had a premium to surplus ratio of 0.78. The hollow premium to surplus ratio was a 1.08 right? So a bit leaner. So you can begin to see unique mixes. Now, when you get to that bond portfolio, to remind everyone again, 62% was the average held in bonds, 54 for sustainable, 73 for hollow, and 60 for destroyer. Now, when you looked to sustainables, right? 84.6% of that bond portfolio, of their 54% of their investments held in bonds, were single A or better, right? So almost 85%, 11.3% triple B and below investment grade, below double B, 4.1%. Now, when you go to hollows, these are the ones that were geared a little more for return, had combined ratios north of 100, only 83% of their portfolio versus 85 for the average was A or better. 13.1% triple B versus 11, so a little higher. And then they were below investment grade, 4.4 versus 3.7. Now, the destroyers who had the lowest investment income ratio, 11.0, 
and the lowest gross yield of 3.7 over the 20-year period, they had 93% of their bond portfolio sat in A or better, 5.8% in triple B versus 11.3, and 0.6% below investment grade versus 3.7. So you begin to see the destroyers, a lot of surplus, very conservative, 34% were stocks, but they have the lowest equity return and a high skew towards A or better, right? 93% of their bond portfolio and that bond portfolio represented 60% of the destroyer's entire portfolio. So this was incredibly interesting to us to see this mix. It is really interesting, the work that you've done. It's amazing. And over a very long period of time. So compare and contrast, you did a life study as well. Can you give me some high level differences of the PNC study versus the life study? Yes. And we serve the life insurance industry and property and casualty, as I said, 100 plus countries, 36,000 members globally. Property and casualty is difficult, complex and hard. But I tell you, the life insurance industry really trying to look at a cash flow model is so, so difficult, much more difficult, right? I'm showing my age here, you know, yellow books, blue books. They tell me they don't publish them anymore, but you still can get your hands on them. In going through the blue book, when you look at these life products, there is such high levels of diversity from life care to life care, from product to product, term, whole, variable, unit, fixed, annuities, deferred annuities, much, much more difficult to apply a free cash flow type model to it. What we're finding is that free cash flow when you look to the property and casualty industry, it has an incredibly strong correlation to total shareholder returns, right? Sustainable value creators, if you used our free cash flow model where you take that asset base and adjust it for current assets and PPE, pull out that non interest bearing liabilities and unrealized gains and losses, and then apply the cost of capital, you can do it. For life, so much more difficult to do it. You also tend to see a decoupling of cash flow return versus share price, where you see a very high R squared between our cash flow model and total shareholder returns, you see a much weaker correlation. In fact, I would argue not statistically significant. So we have the life study. I like embedded value as a proxy, but we don't use embedded value in the United States. It's only used in other parts of the world. So we're still struggling here to come up with a model. So I guess I'm saying the screaming uncle a little bit, very, very difficult within the life space, a lot more complex, not to diminish how hard our business and PNC is, but life is a world unto itself, extremely, extremely difficult, non-trivial, right, to do this analysis. You saw most recently, there's been a couple of big transactions in the private equity space, Allstate selling their book to Blackstone and basically what is tantamount to a regulatory arbitrage. Do you see more of that sort of transaction happening given the difficulties that you've just outlined? Well, when I look to some of the forces facing the life insurance industry, right, we could have a period of very low returns, unique special central bank intervention, not just looking at the United States, but globally, perhaps the Japonification, right, this somewhat you know, stagnant growth, relatively low interest rates. You've got emerging consumer segments, young people, not necessarily the same type of buyers that we've had historically heretofore. So you've got a paucity of demand for some of these products. 
So you've got this uh, perfect storm of somewhat muted demand, perhaps reduced investment income ratios. Obviously, life is uh, all insurance is sold, not bought. That's doubly true for the life insurance industry. I think there's a lot of life writers out there saying, gosh, I could use this capital to innovate, invest, modernize, transform. I would uh, think that it's more likely than not that we will see more of it. How much of it, to the extent, I think will be driven by macroeconomic factors, especially interest rate, uh, yield curves, and consumer demand. But I don't think any of your listeners would be surprised to see that uh, trend continue. Man, what a fire hose of information. Fantastic. This is this part of the uh, podcast called Get to Know Bill Peroni. So we have two questions in this segment. Sure, I even warned me about this. So no, no, no. I know this is that this whatever is a, I say here now, I had no time to even think about that's it. That's right. No, this is right? straight cold. Nobody, nobody, don't feel bad, Bill. Nobody gets to hear any prep on these. It's All a right. three-day weekend, and I can assure you with certainty that nothing is going to catch on fire at the office. What's on your agenda? Oh, that's easy. So I work out a lot. So I'll work out. I'm Italian American. So one of those nights will be homemade pizza dough which I'll make in the morning and let it rise slow and cold, which is a real good trick. Everybody wants to put it in the oven, keep it warm. No, no, let it rise slow so that it is time to ferment, right? And develop real flavor. So that'll be one of those nights. The next one will be, I like going out. I'm fortunate, I live in a New York area, but not New York City where I can go for long walks in the forest. We have mountains here. So that definitely would involve that. And then being Italian, in addition to the carbohydrate that I got from pizza, it would involve a homemade pasta or lasagna, right? I don't know that I need a three-day weekend. That's probably every one of my weekends. (laughs) But um, uh, I'm kind of uh, easy to predict uh, what I'll be doing Friday. In fact, if I don't make pizza on Fridays, the family's like, what's wrong? I didn't have time. I had phone calls. They're like, well, what? There's like withdrawal for it. So (laughs) that's a fairly uh, constant thing. And working out because, but I have to work out because I'm eating all those carbohydrates. You're eating all the pizza. Do, Dude, but I have to. This is I perfect. I, you got me. I'm hooked. I want a Bill Perotti pizza as well. So second question, right. here it is. It's your college graduation day from your undergraduate institution. And despite what may have happened the night before, you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and looking very spiffy in your cap and gown. You wait patiently and you wait for your name to be called. You climb the steps, walk across the stage. The crowd goes crazy. You go up, you get a handshake from the president. You get a quick photo op as they hand you your diploma. You walk down the stairs and you run into Bill Peroni today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? You know, let me think hard about that one. I would say, be more patient. It's going to work out. So the same kind of energy and enthusiasm you saw At a younger age, it looks like impetuous and you're rushing things and you want it to happen very quickly. The advice would be, it's going to work out. Relax, right? Stay aggressive, try hard, but you don't need to be so enthusiastic, perhaps. It will just work out for you. Don't worry about it, right? So that's probably the advice I would give myself is it'll work out. So relax, take a deep breath, enjoy yourself a little bit. It's going to happen for you. Right. So I think that would be the advice I would give myself. That is fantastic. But you can only give that advice after it works out. Right. It's always easy to look back on it. Right. And then you say to yourself now, would it have worked out if I didn't try as hard along the way? Would you have gotten everything? So 
you know, it's it's a, a bit of a conundrum here. So right? if I went back in time and gave myself that advice, perhaps it wouldn't have worked out the way I wanted it to. So but that's what I would have said. That is fantastic. Bill Peroni, CEO of Accord. Thanks for being on. Stuart, thank you for hosting us. And thank you for your listenership. It compelled us to do some analysis regarding that investment portfolio that we had not done heretofore. And I learned a lot. And I hope your listeners did as well. And you can have us back anytime. Thank you for hosting Accord and for inviting me to speak today. My pleasure. Absolutely. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Thank you.